Good morning. All right. I'm so glad to be in God's house this morning. I hope you are. And uh, man, looking around, seeing some faces, I haven't got a chance to speak to you yet. Please don't hurry out the door. And uh, let me have the privilege of saying hello and get, getting to know you. I think I see some new faces as well. So we're so glad you're here. Uh, part of 2911, our worship service this morning. And uh, so glad that you're with us. And we're uh, continuing in our uh, Flip This House series. And just before we have a word of prayer and get into this message, I want to encourage you to do something. If you've not yet been to 201, if you're especially if you're brand new to church, if you're brand new to 2911, if you're brand new to Jesus, if you're brand new to the youth group, if you're brand new to anything, especially as this is for you. Now, I really appreciate you know the people over 30 that showed up today. <laughs> because if you didn't see my post or my tweet yesterday, I said, you know, if you're under 30, make sure you don't miss my sermon tomorrow morning. And I had some smart alecks, you know, go on there and say they were going to sleep in or whatever, whatever. They, did, they didn't have to be here today. Uh, and, but it looks like most of them showed up anyway. So they, 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 were, just, they were just being funny or, or thought they were being anyway. Um, and so they, they knew that this isn't a message just for people under 30. Actually, the message today is really toward those over 30. But it is a challenge to those under 30. And so in the same way, when I say, if you, especially if, you've not, if you're new to any of this around here, whether it's our church or church or whatever, that doesn't mean 201 is only for those people. If you've not been to 201, please be here today at 4 o'clock. It's part of the growth track. This is, this is the pathway to getting involved in 2911 and getting involved in ministry because we believe everybody has something awesome to do for God. Every one of you. Not just the people you've seen up here today. Every single one of us has something awesome to do for God. Let's have a word of prayer and let's get into this message. I've got about two hours worth. Uh, how, how long do y'all have today? Uh, man, I've, I've, been, I've, been, I've been worried about it, you know, just for the past couple of days because I thought there's just no way. So uh, help me pray and please grab this as quick as you can, make your notes as quick as you can, and let's get this message preached. And please, would you go ahead and be ready for the close of this message to accept a challenge? especially those of you under 30, to accept a challenge. Let's pray. Father, I love you. I thank you, God, that uh, you, you love us, Lord. Uh, Lord, I, I like how Max Lucado said it, Lord, that you love us just the way we are, but right where we are, but you refuse to leave us that way, God. It, you've always got something you want to improve upon in our lives. You've always got, some, always got something, God, that you want to challenge in us. You've always got something that you want to... Uh, help us, Lord, to, to develop, to strengthen, to, to be better. And, and I, I, God, today's one of those days. I, I know that this sermon is one of those times. God, your church, Lord, we, we need you. We need your direction. We need your guidance. We need your understanding. God, we lose our way from time to time. We, we go our own way. We, we, we hear a, a word or we see someone doing something awesome and amazing. And we want to copy it. And God, we so desperately need to hear your voice. We need your direction. We need your wisdom, God, and I pray that, Lord, and you help us in this, and you help us receive a challenge from you. In Jesus' name we pray, and everybody said, amen. Okay, so we flipped uh, dads, right? We flipped marriages, you know? We flipped the nation, or we, we, we started working on it. We didn't flip the nation in a week, did we? I know some of you already gotten discouraged because we didn't flip the whole nation in a week. Now, we just got to start with our little part of it, okay? But we've, we've flipped all those things, and so today we're going to flip the church. We're going to flip the church. All right. Now, does the church need flipping? I mean, why would the church need flipping? You know, well, every once in a while, you know, too much of us gets into the church. Our opinions, and when our opinions 
become so strong in the church that there's more opinion than power, the church needs flipping. You know, when there's more, when there, when there are more man ideas than God ideas, our church needs flipping. When we're following after what we hear and see and those things instead of what God is speaking to us, then our church needs flipping. So uh, let me take you this morning, we're going to go to Revelation chapter 2, and uh, we're going to talk about, and, and really several things that, that, that God speaks to us, the, the first four churches of the, of the book of Revelation chapter 2, and beginning uh, verse 1 says, write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. And so Jesus this is who he's describing, the one who walks among the, the one who is, is there in the seventh gold lamp stands. And, and he says, here's my message to the angel, or most people translate this to say he's talking about the pastor, the messenger of the church at Ephesus. Okay, so this is a, this is a direction to the church at Ephesus and to that pastor. He says, I know all the things you do. I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered they are liars. Something right here that he says, and there's something in the middle of this that I'm going to bring out in just a few moments, but at the very beginning he says, I know the things that you do. Things. Things. Can I tell you? Things are not the church. The things are not the church. Stand up, Britton. Do me a favor. Stand up. Point to the church. Point to the church. Thank you. Thank you. That's it. That's it. You know where the church is? The church is not the building. The church is not the sound system. The church is not the stuff. The church is you. You know, you're, you're the church. I'm the church. We are the, the church is us. Okay? Now, uh, here's one of the problems that we have when, when we, when we uh, forget this. And one of the things that we've said around here a lot of times is we refuse to be defined by our building. But you know, that's what most people do. They drive by and they say, have you seen that church? And yeah, it is a local church body. Okay, yes, it is. But this is not the church. That building is not, that's one of the reasons the names are written on the wall. We're not about the wall. We're about the people. We're about the people. That's, that's one of the reasons for that. The, the building, the, the stuff, the things, things are not the stuff of the church you are the church. Okay, but here's one of the problems that, that happens sometimes in people's lives, in, in churches. What we begin to believe is because we are the church, sometimes we begin to believe that then we get to decide what the church looks like. Because we're the church, we get to decide what it is, you know, how it operates and all of those things. You know, and that's no more the truth than the staff of this local church having permission of God to decide what this church looks like. But the staff of this local church, think about it now, the staff, you know, they are like, you know, they're, they're leaders of the church. But they don't have that permission from God either. But the staff's, the, the staff's directive from God is to do everything they can to find out what his will is for this local church. And in the same way, the church, because, you know, this isn't just a church or the church, it is whose church? It's God's church. So even though the church is us, the possessive noun there is God. The church belongs to him. And so even though, even though we are the church, we don't get to decide what it looks like. But it is God's church. And so everything we do, just like a staff in a local church, everything that the church is supposed to do is we're supposed to find out what God wants the church to look like. What God wants the church to be. How the church is supposed to act. How the church is supposed to react. The things that God, the, the things that God wants us to do as a church. So first of all, the church is us. Okay, let's go on and uh, go on. Verse four says, "Yet I have this against you, 
that you no longer love me as you did at first. In our day, we have watched people lose their first love or lose that love for God. We've watched people do that. Now, it's, it's kind of interesting to me that, you know, God's kind of challenging this. You remember what he just said just a few moments ago? I mean, he's talking to him about an inconsistency. Because in that, that second verse that I read a few moments ago, he says, I, I know the things that you've done, and I know how you've endured, and I know how you've been through a whole lot of stuff, but you've endured. You've stood up. You, you, you've made it. And then he says, but you lost your first love. Now, wait a minute. That, that sounds like he's talking about two different people, doesn't it? It doesn't sound like he's talking about the same church, but the same church. The church at Ephesus. What is he saying? He said, man, I have watched you, and there have been times when you have been attacked, and you stood there, and you stood your ground. And then there have been times when I couldn't find you. There have been times when you weren't where you were supposed to be, doing what you were supposed to be doing. Inconsistency. That's, that's what he's calling their attention to. You've been inconsistent. There have been times that you've been red hot for me. You've been on fire for me. And then there have been times that I couldn't even get a message to you. Hey, where are you at? I'm looking for you. I couldn't find you. We lost that, that deep desire and that burning desire and that love for you. Let me take you to, this. remember this is the church at Ephesus that he's speaking to, right? Let me take you to a letter that Paul wrote that we call the book of Ephesians in the New Testament that, that, that God spoke to Paul to write, okay? Let me take you to that right here. It says, for husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. Okay, now, now this is a lot of times we, we use this to talk about marriage and, and because it, it kind of is a, a, a two-way thing here is we're getting some understanding of how men and women are supposed to relate to one another in marriage, but we're also getting an understanding of, what, of how Jesus Christ sees the church, and he calls his church his bride. Okay, and that's what we're talking about right here, is he calls his church his bride. And everything that he does, he's doing things to, to, make, his, to make his bride better or prettier, more pure and all of that. But think about the other side of that. What does the bride do? I mean, the bride doesn't just show up in whatever she found yesterday to wear to her wedding. I mean, you know, you know, the thing I hear all the time is about, you know, we guys, you know, we, we start planning a wedding a couple of weeks out, you know, or whenever she makes us go get fitted for our tux, right? And she's been planning it since she was 10 years old, right? I mean, she's had, she's had the wedding dress. Even if she hasn't had the wedding dress in her hands, she's had it in her mind for all of those years that the bride is thinking. And what's she thinking about? Is she thinking, man, everybody's going to look at me and just think how beautiful? No, that's not what she's thinking about. She is thinking about the guy that is waiting for her at the front of the church, down at the end of the altar, at the end of the aisle, and that when those doors swing open and she steps into his view, she wants to see that look on his face like, wow, there's my bride. Okay, no, 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 you got that. You under, I, no, no, uh, we're not talking about bridezillas this morning, okay? We're talking about real brides, okay? But real brides, I mean, you get this in your mind. This is how Christ sees his church. And so when, so when we begin to prepare ourselves and, and, and we, we come to worship together and all those kinds of things, our, our minds shouldn't be on, you know, uh, putting on the clothes so that everybody says, man, look at that suit he just bought this past week. I mean, that's, you know, that's one of the reasons we, we don't do a lot of suits around here. We don't do a lot of coats and ties around here. I mean, it's not about the coats and ties and the suits and all of those things. It's not about all that. I mean, here, here's, here's what it's become in my lifetime. I've watched it. Now, I'm 51 years old. Y'all are supposed to say, oh, man, you're not that old, are you? Y'all are supposed to say, well, I'm 51 years old, okay? So I've seen a lot of things in, in five generations or in five decades. 
I've seen a whole lot of things happen. And let me tell you what I've seen. For a lot of people, church has become a production. It's become a show. And they come to the show on Sunday morning. They come to the production. They come to see, you know, how good a show can, can Jamie and the band put together, you know? And what's the name of this band we got singing this morning? No, we don't have a band singing this morning. We're just all worshiping. You see, God wants us to enjoy church, but what he, wa- he wants us to enjoy being in his presence. Thank you, John. He wants us to enjoy being in his presence like, like Zacchaeus did in the presence of God. You know, for some people, it's, a, it's, a, it's an hour and a half of a, of a feel-good. You know what I mean? Some of you this afternoon, you're going to go visit your, your grandma in the nursing home. And you're going to feel good about that when you leave. You're going to say, thank God that's over for another month. He said, I got, I check it off. I got, I got it done. I visited my grandmother, and you check it off. And that's the way some people treat church. Is it's an hour and a half feel good. I get to leave here today and say, well, it went, at least I went and I sat in his presence for an hour. You know, it's just like we come every, one, you know, we come every week just to kind of check up on God, make sure you're all right, God. Okay, just want to make sure you were good, God. I mean, that's the way, that's the way a lot of us are. We treat it like a, just a bit of a feel good. But you know, God, God wants more than that. He doesn't want a, a weekend visit. He wants a relationship. And that's why that this building is not the church. You are the church. In the Old Testament, God met people in a building. But in the New Testament, he said, no longer am I meeting people in a building. Your body is my temple. I'm going to meet with you. And every single day of your life, because he doesn't want a weekend visit, he wants a relationship. And for other people, it's become a me fest. My needs, my emotions, feed me. Bless me, pray for me, preach to me, sing to me, 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 me. And God says, when is it going to be about me? Let me tell you, the church, just like, not a bridezilla, but like a real bride, just like for a real bride, it's about her groom. For the church, it's always about the church's groom. It's always about Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who did lift us up out of the junk that he found us in and turned our lives around and delivered us and is, and is providing peace and power and strength and blessing every single day of our life. For the church, it's always about him, for the real church. And when it, when it, when it begins to be about you, I mean, even... even any part of it begins to be about you, then that should be a check to your spirit. Say, wait a minute, something's wrong in here. I mean, you know, that, that woman who, who walks down the aisle and she's checking out everybody else, you know, how, how, how do y'all think I look? That's not the bride we're talking about. We're talking about the bride who the door opens and she walks into the church and she's coming down the aisle and her attention is totally focused on the bridegroom. She wants to know what he thinks. And that's where, that's where God is. I want to know. I want to know what you think about me. Continuing on. And now this is, I believe, the, the, the church at Smyrna. He says, write this. He said, I know about your suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. Wait a minute. Your, your poverty, but you are rich. Wait a minute. I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. They say they are Jews, but they are not because their synagogue belongs to Satan. Okay, a couple of things here, but they all wrap together to, uh, to me and what I see right there. Is that there, there, there is a, there's kind of the, there's a problem in the ministry in a lot, around in a lot of churches today. It, it's a hypocrisy in, in that, you know, what we learn in the New Testament a lot of times isn't what we see acted out in ministries in our land today. 
that what we see, I mean, that thing about, I see your poverty, but you're rich. You ever heard that before? You understand where he's going with that? You know what, he's, what Jesus is saying about this? Is he's talking about, you know, yeah, you're, you're, you're broke in a lot of ways. You know, financially, you don't have a lot of money, but you're rich. You're rich in spirit. You're rich in wisdom. You're rich in understanding. You're rich in the blessings of God and the goodness of God. That's what he's saying to this church. He said, I see your poverty, yet you are rich. But what I see a lot of times around us in ministries today is we got it flipped. Is we're trying to be more rich in the finances than we are in the things that are important. We're, we're, we're more concerned about, you know, like that bridezilla, about how people are going to look at us instead of how people are going to look at him. And when, when the stuff of who we are, and my goodness, some TV ministries just come to mind right now, but I'm trying not to say any of them. But when the stuff of who we are gets in the way of people seeing the God that we serve, then we've, we've lost our way. And this is one of the reasons that the world doesn't trust us anymore as a church. Because they've seen us. They've seen us be more interested in the things than interested in making sure they meet this God that we serve. And so let's make sure, if there's any of that within us, if there's any of that within us, that we flip that back around. Let's continue on. Revelation 2.13 says, I know where you live. You ever heard that? I know where you live. God says, I know where you live. And Satan's throne is there. Spiritual opposition. Everywhere you look today, it seems like Satan's got a throne. In places, in places that I used to go when I was a kid that I kind of felt safe as a young Christian, I look today and I say, hmm, Satan's got a throne. Oh, my goodness. The other day, uh, well, it's been maybe two, three weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago probably, we, we were DVRing some, uh, some shows for, for Brooklyn to watch, and David remembered an old show, Full House. If you remember Full House, the old show, the Olsen twins were this, you know, little girls, babies, you know, and they grew up a little bit. David thought, oh, Brooklyn, she's three years old. She would love this, this, this TV show. And so we recorded it, and we recorded it, and, you know, it's on, you know, it was on a, a station that had commercials. And, and when we started showing it to her, thankfully I was sitting there. We didn't just turn on the TV and leave the room. But, but we turned it on. And in between, it was this, there was this commercial break about 10 minutes long. I mean, I, man, I hit the fast-forward button as quick as I could. I was getting through this, you know, in a hurry. I thought, my goodness, what is this? And they were, showing, they were showing commercials for shows that were being shown on that channel at other times. You know, here, I mean, back when I was a kid, I'd come home from school and turn on the TV, you know, and I'd watch the old shows and the whatever and the whatever, and my mom and dad didn't have to worry about me. But today, Satan has a throne set up. In your child's TV watching times, Satan has a throne in a lot of, and, and, and I really want to, you know, we're, I really want you to understand what we're, talk, what we're talking about here, is we're talking about a generation that has neglected and looked back and, and allowed Satan to build thrones. And so listen, mom, listen, dad, you can no longer walk around and act like you, you live in a Christian society and you're raising kids. Or, or granddad, that you're raising grandkids in a Christian society and that everybody is going to teach your kid to do the right thing. I mean, there were things in that. Okay, I, I'll just go ahead and tell you. I mean, there's a show on that channel that we recorded this on. There's a show there of, of teenagers. It is, it is targeted to teenagers and preteens. 
And there was a scene in the commercial. I'm not talking about later. I'm talking about in the middle of the, in the, middle of the commercial, in the middle of my, my good full house episode for my three-and-a-half-year-old grand, granddaughter. There was, a, there was a scene in the commercial in the middle of all this where, where a girl who probably, uh, 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 the actress is probably portraying a, about a 14-year-old, I, I would guess, I would look and say, and where she, she says something very stern to her mother. She challenges her mother. She, she is talking really ugly, is what I would say, to her mother. Because, and she's saying, you can't judge me. And then the very next thing you see is you see this girl and another girl about the same age, 14-year-old, kiss one another. My three-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter is sitting there watching Full House, and Satan raises up his throne in the middle of this. And, 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 and listen, I, I, you know, I, if you're not politically correct, good, because I'm not either. But if you are, I might offend you. Somebody go ahead and open the doors in case somebody wants to go. But listen, the homosexual agenda has established Satan's throne in the middle of our... And it's not just the homosexual agenda, but it's the sexual agenda. The revolution that started in the 1960s that has wreaked havoc on this country ever since today. I mean, you don't have to go look for it. There is a throne set up of Satan in the middle of all. You don't have to go look for it. It is already there. Everything you want. And so, dads, here, moms, here's what I'm saying. And grandparents, here's what I'm saying. Is you need to understand that the places you used to go and think that you were safe as a Christian young person... You need to understand when you send your kids and your grandkids there today, you're sending them to a place that na- places that most of them now have thrones of opposition, of satanic spiritual influence. So let me go on. I think this one is, is this one Pergamus, but I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. This is an Old Testament reference, and we don't, I, don't, I don't have time to tell you the story about this Balaam and Balak thing. But what he's saying is saying, in your church, you have people that are leading others in your church to go to idol worship feasts. Idol worship feasts. Now, what are idol worship feasts? They don't, we don't have them around here. Yeah, we do. They're just spiritual idol worship feasts. They actually have physical idol worship feasts. You know, they worshiped idols back in those days. And they would sacrifice to those idols. They would sacrifice meat to those idols. And so when they had their feasts, they would go, and they wouldn't just eat the meat that was sacrificed to the idols. They would also party. Now, a lot of the idols or the false gods that they worshiped back in those days they had, they, they had a lot of bad false gods. They, they, had, they had false gods, these idols, who were gods of sexuality, gods of promiscuity, gods of all manner of things like that. So what, what we're talking about here is we're talking about people who are leading other people and taking them to basically big old galas and parties and feasts where all manner, all manner of sin was on display and was being committed and people were engaging in. And I, and I, and I look at the, the, the generation that I've grown up in. And in a lot of ways we can look back and say, the church has had its greatest generation so far because of the growth. Because of being able to put, man, we got TV all over the world now. I mean, you know, satellites are beaming it everywhere, just about every language. There are very few languages in this, in this world today that, that we don't have a Bible written in that language. 
But in the middle of this generation, we've become comfortable with society. I need you to follow me here for just a moment. Because we have become parties to the party. We've become guests to the feast. We've, we've, we've become comfortable in living in the middle of everything else going on out there, regardless of what God says about it. But wouldn't a real bride think, oh, man, the, the, especially that, you know, that last week, think about that last week, oh, this weekend, you know, I, I, and keep themselves pure. You know, I've never understood the, the bachelor party ideal that you get one last fling or whatever. I've never understood that. You young ladies that get told that's the way it is, come talk to me. I'll tell you, no, that ain't the way it is. That ain't right. Uh, you know, I, I've never understood that. The bride is thinking, she's thinking, no, I, I'm going to keep myself for him. I'm not giving myself to him tomorrow. I'm keeping myself for him today because my tomorrow is going to be another place and another, even better, beautiful, more, more wonderful than all of this. But the church today has become comfortable with going to the parties and the feasts and the festivals and the things that are out there. And, and, and I know you want to say, I know some of you want to argue with me right here, don't you? Come on, let's go. You want to say, but wait a minute, Jesus went to their parties. Jesus went to their house. Told you that last week. John just told you a few moments ago. Jesus went to their houses. Jesus went to their parties. He went to their wedding feasts. You know, the one where they ran out of wine. He was there. He went and he did all that, right? Yes, Jesus did. But here's the difference. Jesus didn't just go as one of the guests. He didn't go to, to involve himself in the things that were going on there. He didn't even go to enjoy looking at the things that were going on there. You know what happened when Jesus went to a party? I'll tell you what happened. When Jesus went to parties, people got saved. When Jesus went to parties, people got healed. When Jesus went to parties, rich men, like the story of John, rich men, rich men stand up and say, wait a minute, when Jesus goes to a party, people are confronted, and they are challenged to confront themselves. When Jesus goes to party, prostitutes walk in the front door, and they fall on their face before him and say, I'm a wretched sinner, please forgive me. That's what happens when Jesus goes to parties. I mean, and we're going to parties, and nothing's happening. We're going to parties and, and, and nobody's changed. We're going and we're, and we're and our, you know, he, he was talking about, you don't know how much you're getting on my sermon there just a few moments ago, John. Dude, you didn't know that much. I, I mean, you know, he was talking about how God's presence, listen, if we're full of God's presence, when we step into somebody's presence, something should change. Something should change. And when things aren't changing, then, then we, need to be, we need to step back and say, wait a minute, what, what's going on here? I mean, you know, I don't know about you, but when I go to a wedding, you know, I'm kind of watching. I'm watching the groom. Sometimes I'll look back at the bride and watch the groom. Look back at the bride. I, I like to see that interaction of that first, maybe that first time he sees her. I like to see that. And that's what, that's what this world is supposed to do. They're not supposed to see you. They're so, if they see anything about you, they're supposed to see your relationship with the bridegroom as you're walking through all of this other junk that you're focused on him. And it is that relationship that is going to change things. Last night, late last night, I, I was going through this message one last time. I was just digging through this. And I thought about, a, I thought about a, a quote from a book that I haven't even picked up in years. I, 
I, uh, I've, I've still got a copy of it somewhere. I'm sure it's in a box in my basement somewhere. I don't research them that way anymore. It's a whole lot quicker to, to Google it. I thought about a quote. So I text Mike late. I said, Mike, you got to add this. If you got time, please add this. But I told him to stick it right here. Got to read you a quote from Charles Colson in his book, The Body. While the church may seem to be experiencing a season of growth and prosperity, it is failing to move people to commitment and sacrifice. Somebody say, Amen, roll me. The hard truth is that we have substituted an institutionalized religion for the life-changing dynamic of a living faith. Living faith. That when you step into somebody's situation, don't read ahead of me. Come on, stay with me right here. When you step into a situation, your living faith is a life-changing dynamic. When compared with previous generations of believers, we seem among the most thoroughly at peace with our culture. My granddad wasn't, not when he was living right. He wasn't. The least adept at transforming society and the most desperate for a meaningful faith. Our raison d'etre or our reason for being is confused. Our mission obscured. Our existence as a people in jeopardy. Worst of all, our leaders know it but seem unwilling or unable to do anything about it. So everybody point your finger at the teenagers and say, how dare you? Oh, before you do that, let me tell you this was written 20 years ago. So the only fingers we need to be pointing is to anybody who was an adult in 1992. So that, that tells me that this, this didn't happen yesterday. This has happened over generations. And we have lost the ability. The church is losing and has lost the ability to impact their world. Teenagers, 20-somethings, 20-somethings, they weren't adults in 1992. Listen, we failed you. Come on, somebody better help me. We failed you. We let it down. We lost it. We didn't challenge you the way we should have challenged you. We didn't hold it up the way we should have held it up. I'm, I'm, I'm repenting for a generation today, a generation of church-going, Bible-believing people that we didn't hold up our end. And, you know, and I, was thinking, I was thinking this this week, and I thought, you know, what, you know what we need to do, every one of you, if you were an adult in 1992, you know what you need to do, especially if you were in church in 1992. As an adult, every single Sunday, you need to find one person younger than you, and you need to go by, do it maybe a different one every week, pat them on the back and say, I want you to know, I'm praying for you this week. You need, don't, 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 just, don't just repent and say, well, yeah, God, we messed up, and I'm sorry. No, bring some fruits of repentance. Do something. Do something to change so, I mean, we've, we've put, this, we've put this, this country that was one nation under God, we've put it in a place that is, makes it so hard for our teens and our 20-somethings to raise their kids to know God without, without being scared of a commercial that might come on in the middle of full house. I mean, somebody needs to do something about flipping where we've come to back to the place of where we need to be. I was reading the other day, I made a note, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, I made a note, and I saw you know, this guy was saying this, and he said, you know, we, we, we've done this, and we've done this, and we've done this, and we're worried about this, and we're worried about this. You know what we need to do? It's time to flip the house. 
It's time to flip the house and start living a life out there in our communities that screams, follow after me because I know where I'm going. I know who I'm following, and he has the answers for you. So let us repent. I told you this was a message too, over 30s. But I want to challenge you teens. I want to challenge you 20-somethings. I want to challenge you moms, young moms and young dads. I want to challenge you. We let you down. Now you've got a decision to make. Will you pick it up? Let me, let me take it. There's one last verse in Revelation. But I have this complaint against you. You are permitting that woman, that Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. Again, repeating that thing about eating food offered to idols. But here, for this church, Jesus flips it and he puts the sexual immorality in front of it. And it seems that this woman, what she was doing is she was not just existing in the church and trying to be a leader, but she was also involved in sexual immorality. And not only was she involved in it, she was trying to get other people to be involved in it. My goodness, I've never heard of anything like that in my life. Yeah, you have. Because some of us have done it. Let me take you to Romans and show you what I mean. Romans chapter 1, verse 32. Although they know God's just requirement that those who practice such things deserve to die. Listen, here's what he's saying. He's just giving a list of all this stuff that people were doing. This is 2,000 years ago. It hadn't got better, guys. It's gotten worse. And all these things and the sins that people are committing and the, and the evil things, some of the things, you know, there's there a lot of sexual sins mentioned in the verses preceding this. And he said, he said, they not only do these things, but even applaud others who practice them. And you know what, when I read that, you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me that there's an adult somewhere who paid a little girl, a little teenage girl, to portray a 14-year-old lesbian kissing another girl on a TV show that my granddaughter was going to have almost saw a commercial for. There's an adult that paid her to do that. And it didn't happen one time, and it didn't happen to one girl. There's a society out there that is celebrating the sexuality of our teenagers. And and it says they they don't just do those things, but they even applaud those who practice them. And that there is a group of 40-somethings and 50-somethings and maybe even 30-somethings. They're the ones, I mean, we're the ones that that are paying the bills. Paying the bills for the, for the movies that are being produced and applauding and saying, oh, how wonderful it is that you can celebrate your sexuality in this way. And you say, well, I've never done that. You ever bought a ticket to one of those? Yes, you have. And you're applauding. And we're applauding. Young people, listen to me. We've blown it. I, I, I've got to say, it's, it's our fault, mea culpa. I, we, we, I, I, I repent for a whole generation, but young people, let me encourage you. Stand up. Get it done. Ignore, ignore, the, ignore the, uh, the indulgences of the previous generation. Ignore the indulgences of my generation and decide that you're going to raise your family to be who God called them to be. Go ahead, stand. Raise the standard back up. And perhaps, maybe, if you do it, maybe you can find a 40-something or a 50-something who will also stand and get behind you and say, I believe you can do it. I'm praying for you this week. I gotta show you one. I, I gotta show you this one last thing. I, I told Mike I didn't know if I'd get here. I gotta show you this. I preached about Esther not too long ago. You remember that? And in Esther, Haman wants to destroy all of Israel. Here, here's, 
there's a backstory to this. 550 years before that, the year 1050 BC, 1030 BC, or somewhere around there, somewhere between 1020 1040 BC, God tells King Saul, who is king of Israel, he was of the tribe of Benjamin, God tells King Saul, You destroy the Amalekites. You're going to war with them. You need to wipe them out because of all the stuff they've done. God had his reasons for for saying this. There was a lot of evil that Amalek had done, the Amalekites had done. God said, Saul, you need to destroy, wipe out that, get rid of that nation. They are a plague on this country. Listen, God's got his reasons for that. Saul, though, spared the king. The king's name was Agag. He spared the king, and he spared others. And because of this, this was one of the two times that God really regretted that he had made Saul king of the Jews. Now, flash forward to 550, 550 years later, to 480, I think, at 480 B.C., and we find the Israelites, a lot of them living in the land of Persia. And there is a man named Haman, and he has decided... I've got, a, and he comes with a plan, and he gets the king. The king of the entire empire is ready to help him wipe out all of the Jews. And this Haman, and you see it right there, Haman was the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, or meaning that he was a descendant of King Agag. And he had to be stopped. And who did God use to stop the Agagite, the Amalekite? He used a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin. Mordecai's great, 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 whatever, great uncle, however many greats it was, Mordecai's great, great, great uncle refused to do what God called him to do. And so deliverance had to come from that same bloodline. And because he didn't do it, another generation had to fight the fight. Young person, One more time. We failed you. Forgive us. You got to step into the place of Mordecai. You got to become the next generation who says, My previous generation, my dad, my granddad, they didn't fight like they fought. They got too comfortable with that out there. They didn't listen to God's word completely and totally, and they did a few things their own way, but not me. I'll stand for God. I'll do what God's called me to do. I'll be the man. I'll be the woman of God that He needs us to be you got to stand up. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But the only thing I can offer you today is I can offer you a challenge. I can offer you my prayers for the anointing of God to be upon you. I can offer my commitment to stand behind you every time you stand against another one of these thrones that have been resurrected in this one nation under God to Satan. I can stand with you. But the first thing you got to do is make, up a deci- make your own mind up, make a decision that you're going to stand. If you will, I want to ask you 20-somethings and teens to stand and come in front with me. And listen, if you're married to a 20-something, come on down with them, okay? If you're 31 or whatever, you know, come on down with them. I don't want to split up any households here. Come on. And come get a little close to me right here. Cause I, and I want the rest of you to come stand behind them. Come on. Everybody else. Step on in just a little bit so that they can get in behind you. Let's be real, let's be real physical about what we're going to do here this morning. We're going to commit to something for them. 
so, sorry, Mac. Sorry, Blaze. Megan. Sorry. 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 I'm sorry. We made it tough on you. Man, I just look back. Have you ever said, I wish I could back up about 30 years, some of you that are my age? I'd love to raise my grandkids back when I was a kid. Wonder years. You know, some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Wonder years. Wouldn't you like to say that? We failed them. I want you to pray for some of them right now. I'm praying for you. Listen, I want, I want, I want you to get close enough to lay a hand on, on one of these youngsters that was down here before you came. Get close enough. You can move on up, get a little closer. Let's make sure everybody's got a hand on their shoulder. I want you, I want you to do something physically today that is a symbol of what you're going to be doing for the, next, for, for the rest of your life. Praying for a younger generation to help you, help them restore what we've lost. To help them fight the battles that we failed to fight. To refight the battles that we lost. Would you pray with it? Jamie's going to lead us in a final song. Don't start singing.